Hi, it's JP Mac, and welcome to Liberty Relearn, not just another conservative blog. Okay, this past week marked the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and we're going to talk about that. And also, we're going to talk about whether or not uh, the United States is headed for a national divorce. We've just passed the first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. While both the left and the right have condemned the invasion and both support Ukraine, the two camps do so for different reasons. The left looks at Russia as a threat to their globalist agenda, while the right looks at it as a threat to peace in the West and fear an alliance sleepwalking into World War III. And so a couple days ago, the President of the United States went over to Ukraine and had a uh, highly publicized visit of Ukraine and met with, of course, Vladimir Zelensky and also made a uh, speech in Poland about our commitment to Ukraine. So we're going to break that down uh, a little bit. Um, so first thing is the president's uh, trip to Ukraine. Um, of course, it is a uh, photo op, as you know, you could expect. Um, but the part of the photo photo op that a lot of people are are talking about is the part where uh, the president is walking uh, with Vladimir Zelensky through this part of Kiev, and the air raid sirens go off. Now, a lot of people have noted with the video that there's, there's no video, there's no reaction from the Secret Service. Now, the Secret Service has but one job, really, in this case, and that is to protect the life of the president. And they're not seeing him ushering him into a, uh, a safe location or, or an air raid bunker. Um, he and Vladimir Zelensky are seen... Uh, strolling casually through the streets of Ukraine while the uh, air raid siren is going off. And it's interesting that, um, well, one could speculate why the Secret Service didn't usher uh, the president into a safe location or a bunker. Um... Now, what you're meant to believe is that the uh, president and Zelensky, you know, were unflinching and were unafraid of um, the air raid that, it, that we were supposed to believe happened. Um, but yet, um, you have the uh, Secret Service not doing anything, so... There's only really a couple of possibilities for this. One, uh, the Secret Service acted completely incompetently 
in not protecting our president. Um, one would imagine that their job would entail uh, ushering the president to some safe space. Now, of course, presidents do visit war zones. Uh, president Bush uh, visited both Iraq, Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and so did President Trump. They did there, of course, while the war was on. Uh, but in that case, they they flew in and out, and you can pretty much bet that if an air raid siren had gone off, in that case, they would have been ushered into the bunker of some sort. Now here is what's obviously part of a photo op. They're, they're, um, the President and Zelensky are strolling down the street of Kiev, and... You know, the the air raid siren is perfectly timed to get them while they're in, you know, mid-frame um, to capture the moment. Um, so again, it's either the, the, the uh, Secret Service performed their duties incompetently or they were told, uh, don't, you know, if you hear a... Uh, air, air raid siren in the next few minutes. Uh, don't worry about it. That's just for show. And um, so I think you can guess which one of it uh, of those things I believe it happened. I believe that this was a photo op. I mean, just the visuals of it were were too perfect. Um, and again, no reaction from the Secret Service, uh, who have but one job to protect the president. Their their job is not to make the president look brave or make him look good. They're, it's to keep him alive. And so duty would have dictated in this uh, instance that they come and issue him, him into a, a bunker. But that didn't happen. Which, again, suggests that the air raid siren was uh, bogus. Or they knew about it ahead of time. It was staged in order to show a brave President Zelensky and Biden uh, walking side by side, not being flinched by Putin's aggression. That was the message, obviously, that you were meant to take. Um, but again, it was so perfect as to be almost unbelievable. And this harkens back in, to another time where you had then uh, President Clinton, Bill Clinton. Uh, he's in the beach of Normandy. And so they, they're catching him in a supposed uh, candid moment where he's at the beach of Normandy and um he's placing some rocks i believe it was supposed to be in in the shape of a cross and in a moment of uh silent reflection that was supposed to be you know candid obviously uh it was the whole thing was staged and so that's what uh many including myself believe happened with the um uh, trip to Ukraine. Now, of course, again, you know, uh, there are other presidents have made trips to war zone. Um, 
you know, um, Churchill, of course, was stuck in a war zone, and uh, but uh, Roosevelt traveled to the war zone. Um, he traveled to uh, meet with Churchill on a number of occasions. Um, so he went to Europe, and of course, he would have been in somewhat uh, danger um, when he was there. And again, President Bush traveled to Iraq and Afghanistan and also did President Trump. And I believe uh, uh, President Obama also traveled to both uh, Iraq and Afghanistan while he was president also. But in, in this case, you have the president... Um, purely doing um, something staged, uh, a, a photo op. Um, again, it's for propaganda purposes. Um, I think most people just saw right through it. So, uh, you, you had that. Um, but getting back to the overall uh, conflict... Um, it's not one that's easily, I think, uh, diagnosed or a, a remedied. And so what I mean by that is, basically, in essence, you had uh, one corrupt authoritarian country uh, invade a slightly less corrupt and... and uh, authoritarian country in that you know since well I think that uh, democracy has had a spotty reputation in Ukraine at best of course we know you know under uh, Vladimir Putin you know the rep reputation of uh, democracy in his country but also in um, in Ukraine, it's also a, a bit suspect. Um, but he was de democratically elected. And it, it does seem that, though, that Zelensky has moved to consolidate power. Um, but that's, that's one thing. You also have the corruption in both of those countries. Uh, particularly at the fall of the Soviet Union and... Uh, the two countries went their separate ways. The Ukraine uh, favored uh, the West more, and of course Russia, you know, stayed where it is um, politically, basically, and you know, liberalized a, a little bit, but essentially kept their uh, authoritarian features of their government and. So, but and but and there was widespread corruption and remains widespread corruption in both countries. Uh, of course, Ukraine, you know, had the the fire sale um, right after the the fall of the Soviet Union of a lot of their tanks and missiles and armaments and stuff, and so. Um, they sold off a lot of their weaponry. Um, basically to the black market. And so, you know, Ukraine, along with Russia, not, is not 
um, without their corruption problems. Like I said, it seems to be a case of one authoritarian corrupt country invading a slightly less corrupt and slightly less authoritarian country. And so from the beginning, it's hard to, I mean, it's easy to see who the aggressor is, but only because um, Putin is an order of magnitude worse than Zelensky and their whole corruption situation is probably, I would say, well, probably roughly equal, to be honest. But, uh, you know, we could say that Russia probably had as much as a head start as Ukraine ever did in in terms of uh, corruption. Now, of course, the, the old axiom applies here, you know, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, of course, that would be the case with Vladimir Putin. He has absolute pa- power, um, pretty much political power in that country. And, of course, that's corrupted, corrupted him absolutely. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky, by contrast, has less than uh, total power in his country. So, one could say, relatively, um, his ability to engage in corruption is uh, only equal to his power as president. And so that would be slightly less than that of Vladimir Putin. Um, So you have that, but you also have the, uh, a clear aggressor in this case. Uh, Putin invaded the Crimea. Uh, The West did virtually nothing. because, uh, you know, Obama, his reaction to the invasion of Crimea was to send Ukraine uh, blankets and uh, medical supplies and no lethal aid. Um, because they didn't want to provoke, they were afraid of provoking Russia at that point. But what they did do, apparently is armed warlords, independent warlords, inside Ukraine. Um, apparently they, they did do that, and some of that uh, secret war, I guess, these secret armies, I guess, um, that the United States was allegedly funding, uh, came out during uh, the first impeachment of President Trump that had to do with the uh, quote-unquote, you know, perfect phone call and uh, ter- you know it turns out that upon further inspection we found out that there was another uh, quid pro quo remember that was the main allegation against Trump was that he withheld the uh, military aid from Zelensky in, in um, pending on uh, what you know according to the Democrats him taking down his uh, political foe, which was Joe Biden, who had not even at the time announced his run for president. So, but that was the allegation. Of course, a lot of people believed it. Um, But upon further inspection, um, Biden's critics, or Democrats' critics, pointed out that, hey, there was indeed a 
uh, quid pro quo involving Ukraine, only it wasn't with Trump, it was with then Vice President Biden telling uh, the then president of Ukraine, he told the Ukrainians, listen, um, you're not going to get this uh, billion dollars of loan guarantees unless you, you fire this person who's been, this prosecutor who's been uh, looking into the business dealing of his uh, son's company or a company that his son had involvement is, uh, you know, Burisma. And so it turns out that um, there was a quid pro quo, only it was the termination of this prosecutor who was inve- who was investigating his son's interest in Ukraine, the company that, that his son was being paid by in Ukraine, in exchange for uh, releasing foreign aid to Ukraine. So there was indeed a quid pro quo. Uh, it just wasn't the ones that Trump's detractors were talking about. And that's not conspiracy theory. You literally have it on videotape. The whole thing where Biden is bragging in front of an audience about exactly, you know, he said, you know, we're leaving here. And I, and I guess the story was, you know, in 12 hours or whatever it was, you know, if by that time, you know, that person... Uh, that prosecutor is fired, you're not getting your money. Um, so you, we have, it's on videotape where uh, um, Biden, Vice President Biden at the time, who was in charge of our, I guess, uh, spearheaded our efforts in Ukraine. He was the figurehead, I guess, of our Ukraine efforts. Um, not surprisingly, you know, when, when we talk about Ukrainian corruption, apparently involves uh, President Biden, then Vice President Biden and his son Hunter, and other members, uh, possibly, of the Biden family. Because, again, Hunter did take money from Burisma, and Burisma really was being investigated by the Ukrainians, and the prosecutor investigating... Uh, Burisma was really fired um, by the Ukrainians under threat by then Vice President Biden uh, for withholding this uh, aid, this loan guarantee. That all really did happen, and the Democrats don't dispute it. Um, Well, they can't because, you know, it's, it's there for the entire world to see. So part of that, when we part, when we talk about uh, corruption, uh, not just in Ukraine but also in Russia, we're also uh, talking about allegations of corruption involving Hunter Biden and his father, now President Joe Biden. And of course, some of that corruption also uh, entails dealings with China and Chinese Communist Party. And so all of this is, you know, if ever the Republican Congress decides to impeach President Biden, you can bet that this corruption will be at the forefront of any articles impeachment filed against the president. But we're not there yet. I think the 
uh, well, two things are going on on that front. You have the 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 Republicans uh, waiting to see what happens. They're they're just beginning to hold their committee hearings um, involving corruption. Uh, they did. Um, as part of their hearings, interview, talked to, um, I think it was Bob Alinsky, if not mis- I was not mistaken, one of Hunter Biden's business partners. And Bob Alinsky had insinuated that uh, Hunter Biden had an agreement that uh, 10% of the proceeds for this alleged influence peddling would go to the big guy. The big guy in this case, uh, almost certainly being his father, uh, Joe Biden. And I believe that was mainly with regards to his dealings in China, where they would, uh, Hunter Biden's company would receive all of this, you know, sweetheart deal in return. Uh, again, it's alleged that 10% of the proceeds would go to, quote-unquote, the big guy. The big guy, you know, oh, you know, you'd have to say, obviously, has to be uh, none other than Joe Biden himself. So when we're talking about uh, Ukrainian corruption and Russian corruption, remember, uh, Hunter always also had dealings in uh, Russia also, and as I mentioned, China also. And so you have the corrupt, corruption angle with uh, both Russia and Ukraine um, touches the Biden family in some fashion. And so you have that. And But getting back to the conflict in general, again, the, the corruption is one thing that makes it hard to really paint uh, one side as the good guy. Again, it's only by an order of magnitude uh, with uh, Vladimir Putin first invading Crimea and then um, invading eastern Ukraine, trying to annex eastern parts of eastern Ukraine. And he's clearly the aggressor, and uh, he obviously has, uh, does Putin have a reputation of playing dirty, Obviously, he was a former uh, KGB chief and operative in the old, under the old, you know, Soviet Union. And so you, you have a lot of dealings with people being disappeared who were uh, enemies of Vladimir Putin. So uh, Vladimir Putin obviously comes with a big, large reputation as a bad guy, uh, perhaps even, one might say, an even evil villain. And you contrast that with Vladimir Zelensky, has a more clean image. He came to power under a platform of cleaning up the corruption in Ukraine. Um, uh, Zelensky was an actor, he was a comedic actor, and he actually was in a sitcom where he played... I think it was the Russia or, or the leader of Ukraine, if I'm not mistaken, and who uh, the idea of the sitcom was, you know, him trying to um, fight corruption 
in Ukraine. And so he was elected on a, pl a platform um, due to his notoriety and his popularity from being a comic and being on TV to for doing it for real. Obviously, there is a large appetite inside that country for fighting corruption. But apparently, instead of fighting the corruption, uh, Zelensky ended up uh, joining the corruption or being corrupted himself. And so that's why it's hard on that case. You know, again, it's only but for being uh, Putin being so much worse and being the aggressor that, you know, we, it's pretty easy to, to pick sides uh, for us in America and for us here in the West um, and side with Ukraine. Um, but, but as I uh, mentioned in my introduction, you have in this country, you have the left and the right and pretty much worldwide also. The left and the right both are united in their opposition against Russia and particularly against uh, Putin uh, in favor of Ukraine. And, uh, of course, Trump is famous for, um, you know, we were giving only non-lethal aid to Ukraine. Um, and this is after the invasion of Crimea. Uh, Trump uh, bumped that up to now he was sending them lethal aid, um, javelin missiles and armaments and stuff of that nature. And so he upped the ante with the inclusion of lethal aid. And of course, um, President Biden and his NATO allies in Europe have also increased the amount of lethal aid. Uh, now you have several countries in Europe uh, giving them, giving Ukrainians some of their Leopard tanks, pre-advanced tank systems. We give gave Ukraine recently some of our Abrams tanks, which are arguably the best tanks in the world. Um, it's not a whole hell of a lot of them, but it's enough maybe to help them out. And of course, you know, we've sent them uh, anti-aircraft missile systems particularly our Javelin missile system, and the British have their version, their anti-aircraft system that they sent them. And, of course, other countries, uh, other former uh, Warsaw Pact countries have been sending them their old uh, Warsaw Pact era uh, armaments, which, of course, the Ukrainian military would be more familiar with and have more uh, of an ability to replace and repair. They have more knowledge of these systems, obviously more of an infrastructure for dealing with, you know, the various uh, weapon systems that came from the old uh, Warsaw Pact during the Soviet Union days. A lot of it was Russian built and Russian designed. And so um, they've been giving him that sort of aid. And so this has been going on for a year now, well, over a year now, um, but a year now since the invasion of, um, well, invasion of Ukraine, which really happened a long time before that. 
of course, there was the invasion of Crimea, and then Putin's uh, set to work uh, following Crimea, um, basically destab helping the destabilization of eastern uh, parts, the eastern oblast of Ukraine. And so that's what they're fighting over now. And of course, um, this just... Uh, Putin took a page out of his, his own old playbook where what he did something quite similar to Georgia. He took more um, Russian-speaking parts of Georgia, more Russia-friendly uh, portions of Georgia, and attacked them and, and annexed those parts of of Georgia that were favored, that were closest to Russia and. Uh, were, were filled with ethnic Russians. And so he uh, repeated that playbook again in Ukraine, and now it looks like he's doing the same thing in the country of Moldova. And so you have one side acting as a clear uh, aggressor in this case. Um, Putin, when he annexed Crimea, that was the first annexation of territory in Europe since the end of World War II. Uh, so that's kind of a dubious distinction. And again, um, Putin wants the uh, warm water port of Crimea in uh, Sevastopol. You know, he wanted that to have that warm water port for his fleet because um, other the other ports uh, that Russia has that Russia controls are mainly up north and they ice over during the winter and so he needed a port that didn't ice over during the winter where he could uh, have his ships and project uh, Russia's power during the winter months and so we needed that the port in Crimea so he went in there and basically uh, attacked the Ukrainians and took Crimea from the Ukrainians. That was uh, a few years ago. That was before Trump was in office. And notably, you know, Putin didn't make any uh, further moves against Ukraine, at least overt. Uh, certainly, we can assume he made some covert moves against Ukraine and destabilizing the East. He continued his... Uh, pattern of destabilizing parts of countries and then uh, building up a, a pretext for annexing them later, uh, as he did, as I mentioned, with Georgia. And so Putin did that. And then once uh, Trump was out of office, um, almost immediately, it would seem, in hindsight, that uh, Putin put in his plans to take uh, the southern or, or the easternmost uh, portions of Ukraine. And, of course, he wants to build a, a land bridge between Russia proper and Crimea so that he can better um, supply that part, which he considers part of Russia now. And so... You have Putin being a bad actor. It makes him easy to identify as the villain in this scenario. But 
it's again it's one bad guy um attacking another um not bad guy but less than good guy we'll say in vladimir Zelensky. and but getting back to the differences between the left and the right on this subject that's basically where the 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 commonalities and what similarities end is our being united uh, against Putin and his aggression and in favor of the Ukrainians and up until up and including the arming arming of the Ukrainians. Now, of course, since then, we've uh, spent billions of dollars in Ukraine, uh, I think about $100 billion at this point, and that, uh, no, that total is ever-increasing. And so we are basically upholding, we are bankrolling the Ukrainian government at this point, paying for... Um, their wages of their civil servants and their government and we are paying for the pensions of retired Ukrainian members of the government and civil service and so we are basically bankrolling their uh, government at this point and also we are providing them uh, lots and lots of armament now again the Republicans and the, and the conservatives and the conservatives in Europe don't have too much of a problem with this. Uh, the main difference is the degree uh, to which we believe, or each side believes, they, they should be uh, uh, arming Ukraine. And again, it would be... I'd be dis doing you a disservice to say that there's some easy answer and that, um, you know, it's a binary decision. Now, of course, uh, some people would have you believe that it's a binary decision. Either get out of Ukraine altogether or arm them and help them on to victory. But that is not the case. Um, again, we are spending a whole lot of money in Ukraine, um, but people, some people on the right are starting to wonder, well, so if we're, if we're going to spend that money anyhow, uh, maybe we can throw that money into uh, places in the United States that need it. Uh, we still have a border problem. We have, of course, there was the rail disaster in Ohio recently and a couple others in other parts of the United States, you know, maybe we can send some of that money instead to help the United States if we're going to be spending that money anyhow. Obviously, fiscal conservatives would say, well, let's not spend any of that money because we don't have it. We are about $30, billion, $30 trillion in debt and which is now every all of the increased spending and it's we're at, we're spending more than we're taking in and so now we're having to print money which is causing inflation the fiscal conservatives particularly in the house and the gop don't want that and 
So if you're going to bring down the, the spending, government spending, you're going to ha have to find places to do that. One of those places, of course, is going to be uh, a Ukraine in the Ukraine, how much we support the Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine paying their bills. And so that's one point of disagreement. And, of course, if you say anything of the sort, if you're not totally in uh, for supporting Zelensky in Ukraine, you're, you're called, you know, a stooge of Putin, right? Um, which, is, which is not the case. Um, virtually all Republicans are, are for giving some sort of aid to Zelensky in Ukraine and keeping them in the fight. It's just a matter of degree. But again, the Democrats and the leftists in Europe want to paint anybody who wants to do anything less than um, every you know everything that Zelensky asked for. If you do anything less, then you're a stooge of Putin. And of course, that is not the case. But they will, they will proceed with that narrative anyhow. Um, the other thing that the um, the left is interested in, their interest in Ukraine, as it varies from the, the conservatives and the right, is they like the sort of things that the WEF uh, proposes and the and the whole globalism thing. Um, that you would hear, you know, Klaus Schwab or someone like him talking about with the WEF and Davos and his friends and his uh, sycophants in Davos and across the world like uh, Justin Trudeau in Canada. And so you have the globalists uh, see Russia as a threat to their plans, to their to their globalism, they you know they feel like Russia is not playing ball with them, and so they have to be gotten rid of. Their Russia has to be either made to play ball with them and join uh, their globalist plans and pursue climate change agenda and the left wing policies and and uh, and liberal policies and things of that nature, but particularly the the uh, climate change agenda and also COVID mandates and, and things like that, more authoritarian, totalitarian uh, systems. And so, but Putin is there doing his own thing, which basically he's doing a, you know, uh, make a, uh, you know, he's keeping Russia first. You know, he's doing everything he says for Russia, which kind of is the truth. Uh, be probably more true to say that he's doing everything for a particular Russian, for, you know, himself. But if it helps the Russian people at large, that he's uh, Russia first. And so he's acting as a pretty ultra-nationalist, and coincidentally, uh, becoming very rich in the process. And so he's doing that. And so he doesn't feel like he needs to play ball with the West and their liberal values and their democracy. You know, he's managed to stay in power 
uh, for I think 20 years, you know, several decades now. Um, so he's he's managed to pit, stay in power in Russia for a very long time. Basically, he's a de facto dictator at this point of Russia, and uh, he is ruling as an authoritarian. Um, some would say fascist, but not quite. He is authoritarian. Um, I don't think he's interested in so much propping up any fascist party at this point, but he is looking out for number one, that being himself and uh, his buddies, um, because they are in uh, Russia, basically an oligarchy. And so is so is Ukraine for that matter. But you know, he talks about the oligarchs, uh, people getting rich off of you know billionaires in different economic sectors in Russia, the different industries within Russia. And as long as they're giving uh, old Vlad his cut, apparently he leaves them alone. But as soon as anyone sticks their head up. Uh, maybe starts to challenge him a little bit for power, he cuts their head off. You know, maybe, uh, literally, at least figuratively. Okay, so we'll leave it at that. But again, people who um, oppose Putin's power have a way of disappearing um, or winding up in prison under, you know, a trumped-up charge. Um, and that's the other thing, that's the other problem. When you have a corrupt regime, be it in Ukraine or the United States, under the Biden regime, or um, under Russia, under Putin, you know, everybody is playing the game. Everybody has to play the game and be corrupt, or else they're going to be left behind. Or even worse, they're going to be ruined and they're going to have their stuff taken for the people who are willing to play the game. And so you have that corruption, of course, and now everybody is corrupt, so no, and no one's innocent, everybody's guilty. And so there's always something that someone, particularly a former KGB agent, can find on somebody um, that's illegal because everybody's corrupt. So there's no one who's clean and therefore no, you know, of course the, the famous saying in Russia is, you know, find me the person, uh, and I'll find you the, the crime. And so that methodology continues on to this day in, uh, Russia. So you, you have that, you have the uh, Russia interference with the globalist agenda. That's the main thing. And then, of course, you have um, also corruption between, alleged corruption at this point, between the Biden family and Biden family interest and elements of Russian interest. Uh, so there's intersecting uh, corruptions with the uh, United States under Biden and uh, Russia under Putin and the oligarchs. And so the intersecting areas of overlapping corruption. 
I just repeated myself, but okay, you got to just. And so, on the other side, you have the uh, conservatives or Republicans in this country and conservatives in other countries. They're just worried about the, the pure aggression. Again, Russia, for the first time since World War II, uh, one country has attacked and annexed another country. That hasn't happened since the end of World War II. And, of course, Putin is, you know, pretty much a, a supervillain at this point. Not much denying that. And so they're against what Putin's doing on those grounds. He's destabilizing uh, Europe. Of course, he's just destabilizing a lot of the markets, the energy markets. Um, he's destabilizing the, the food market. And of course, which is conveniently um, giving an excuse for it. So now that when we have inflation in Europe and in this country, uh, Biden is able to scapegoat the Russians and Putin for any inflation in this country, um, regardless of whether or not uh, that happened, the, the inflation started before or after the invasion a year ago, uh, everything gets blamed on Putin now. Uh, the high cost of food, high cost of medicine, you know, that all is, you know, now Biden has a convenient scapegoat and a lot of people buy into that because there's just enough truth in that and there's just enough truth to say, well, uh, the war in Ukraine is actually disrupting food supplies and energy supplies, particularly to Europe. Um, so there's just enough reality and just enough truth to the situation where um, the Biden is able to use that and exaggerate the effects and blame a lot of the inflation that's going on in this country on Putin and the Russians. And you can hear that anytime you hear um, talk, you know. And of course, in the WEF, and you know, whether it's WEF or with Biden and the State of the Union, you know, not one single bit of inflation is blamed upon their spending and printing of money in our monetary policy, you know, it's all, all blamed on Russia, not a bit blamed on the, the U.S. monetary policy. And so you have the left and the right, both um, opposing Putin and the Russians. Uh, there's a little bit of overlap, you know, with regards to how bad Putin is and his aggression but um, the left is more interested in keeping their gravy train with globalism alive and, you know, getting everybody to uh, bow down and uh, subscribe to their climate change religion. And Putin, in many cases, is saying, no, he's doing his own thing. And then there's also the, the, the overlapping corruption in this country and in Ukraine and in Russia. And so, um, not to mention China, but that's not part of the uh, deal right now. You know, China's are helping supply Russia. You know, Russia is, or China's 
absorbing the market that they was lost by Europe. And so when they lost the Europe, Western European market, um, China is absorbing that. They're absorbing the costs and helping Russia out that way. And no doubt that they're helping to arm Russia also. So, and meanwhile, the Republicans in this country and conservatives in another country are more worried about the peace, you know, getting a peace deal, you know, having peaceful relationships, resuming trade, uh, normalizing trade and the energy sector and getting back to business as normal. And of course, having a peaceful and stable uh, Ukraine that's not causing a lot of refugees to flee into Europe and America. You know, they want to, uh, they need peace. They're, they're looking for peace and, um, and uh, stable Eastern Europe. So that's what the conservatives and the GOP are worried about with regards to Russia and Ukraine. So they both want the same thing, only for very different reasons. And so now, in the last couple minutes, I want to briefly go over um, what's called being dubbed as national divorce. And of course, there's been talking about that for a number of years now, the, great, the, the growing gulf between left and right in the United States. <clears throat> And the differences, uh, some believe, are becoming irreconcilable. And so the only thing that can happen is a, a national divorce. And so uh, John Solomon in John Solomon Reports, uh, he has an article on MTG's Mar uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, national divorce comments caused a firestorm this week. Historian Shirley thinks this should be the... This could be the reality in 20 years. And so briefly, uh, it says, historian Craig Shirley discusses Biden's legacy as, quote, the worst president in U.S. history, the crisis of unity in America, and Marjorie Taylor Greene national divorce comments, and why that may be the reality in 20 years at the rate the U.S. is going. And of course, unfortunately, this is all too believable. 20 years is a decent time frame. Um, but 20 years is also plenty of time to get the ship turned around. It depends largely on what happens on, in 2024 with the presidential election. Well, whether or not this happens or, or has a greater chance of happening after 2024, we'll know. Shirley comments, this has, quote, happened before in our history, and we're foolish to think it won't happen again. It's hard to imagine now, but 20 years from now, 30 years from now, it, uh, is that won't be that hard to imagine America breaking up into two separate republics. You have New England and New York and New Jersey, and the West Coast is is one part 
a part of the of one country and Idaho and the South and Tennessee and Ohio as our other country and there'll be trade agreements there'll be mutual defense agreements and things like that but we're completely bal balkanized okay so what he means by that when he talks about balkan balkanization he means the the balkan countries that that split up and went to war against each other in the 90s of the fall of the soviet union when it, the soviet union was no, no longer there to keep the peace and so you have um, a lot of tension in the balkans and so when they talk about balkans it means basically uh a country dividing up like yugoslavia dividing up into its different tribes its different nations and so that's what he's talking about here and so now you look at everything whether uh the food or what we watch what we read what we listen to there's nothing that unifies us anymore as a nation saying that american has nothing like the uh, space race space race or manifest destiny or many other things there's nothing that unifies us or our language you know we speak with many different languages now in every way we're slowly breaking up as a nation it's not that we're ever really been we've ever really been unified anyway but it's getting worse the only times we've ever really unified was on the afternoon December 7th 1941 that we were a couple of years that we were for a couple of years and then and then the afternoon of 9-11 but that only lasted a couple of months and so basically what he's saying is really the uh, United States hasn't really been unified that much. It is, after all, a conglomeration of states. We have 50 different states, 50 different state governments, and we haven't really been uh, unified as a country, really, with one single goal, one single effort since the dawn of World War II and throughout the World War II years. And also September 11th, 2001, we were unified briefly and we were able to set, uh, set aside our, our differences and concentrate on taking care of business with regards to eliminating Al-Qaeda and that, eliminate, that also uh, led to the invasion of Afghanistan and the... Um, also overthrowing the Taliban in the country, or at least driving them out of power. And so that was the last time we've really been unified as a country. And so wonder, one wonders if um, we can ever get back to that. And of course, we're moving in the opposite direction, where a lot of us are moving, the left and right in particular, are moving into our separate tribes. We have... Uh, one tribe that believes um, in fiscal responsibility, the other tribe, uh, you can guess which which it is, which one I'm talking about, 
uh, wants to buy the votes of the people, um, basically bribing the people with their own money. One side believes that. One side believes in autocracy, uh, doing things like mask mandates, COVID mandates, and they latched very quickly on when we had the, the COVID crisis um, to authoritarian measures, lockdowns and mandates and vaccine mandates and mask mandates. Some of them they cling on to uh, basically until this very day. Uh, the last of the last of the mask mandates, and we barely got to the point where uh, uh, children in the United States are going back to school. I think some of them still ha may have to wear masks in some localities. So, you know, with when the crisis hit with regards to COVID, the authoritarianism gene just kicked in full force. Not as much as it did in other countries in the English-speaking world. You had, for example, in Australia and New Zealand, very tight uh, lockdown policies. You had people being sent basically to concentration camps, being quarantined if they were, not just if they were positive for COVID, but even if they didn't uh, at some point uh, get vaccinated and they came into the country, um, they were segregated. And those countries ruthlessly um, enforced their COVID policies to, to a very authoritarian degree to the point where um, Australia really, you know, you can't really describe Australia as a free country. Certainly was not a free country during the COVID crisis. And so you had that. And also in Canada under Justin Trudeau, you know, the same thing. You had them freezing the accounts of the truckers who uh, did their trucker protests in Ottawa. And not just them, but anybody who financially supported the truckers. The, the uh, uh, Trudeau regime in Canada had their uh, bank accounts frozen and in apparent contravention. And a very specious use, very liberal use, we'll say, of their country's um, uh, anti, I guess, anti-anti-terrorism um, laws. They basically uh, treated the 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 trucker protesters and their supporters like uh, terrorists and those who supported terrorists, kind of like that. And so you had that and. Do you have the problems in this country? You know, not to that degree, but moving in those directions. You have half the country that wants life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, equal justice on, under the law, and the idea that all men were created equal. And the other side doesn't believe in those things. And so, but I run out of time. So now I'm just going to thank you for watching and listening. Support libertyrelearn.com online liberty relearned on facebook at lr podcast on gutter and me jp mac on uh on parlor sorry couldn't get that out um so thank you for watching and until next time stay healthy happy and free